Hi, it's Tony Silva. And Charles Wiz. And episode 104, Two Teachers Talking. Charles and I get together to talk about teaching, taking English in Japan, and all the bliss and horror that comes in the package as we're getting ready for Halloween. Oh, that's where the bliss and horror came yeah. from. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of like, whoa, the horror. Okay. The Are horror. you having a bad week? <laughs> <laughs> and um, this is going to be maybe um, the bo- most boring episode yet. Filled with bliss and horror. Actually, it is bliss and horror, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I yeah, it can be for sure. If um, if it works, if mm. if if what you've done works, it'll be bliss. And if you haven't done this, it will be horror. And then everybody's saying, "Okay, what is the topic here?" Yeah, and this is for your own good. <laughs> We're going to be talking about um, backing. This up. won't hurt. This backing won't hurt, up. as the doctor says, right? This won't hurt. It'll just be boring. And but, we're going to uh, talk- yeah, the importance of backing up, how to back up, and uh, to really save your butt, um, and, it, and it will, and it will, and right. uh, someday you'll thank us. And that's the first part. And then the second part is a really important thing that is also incredibly boring, and that's privacy, and how to deal with keeping your data private, especially things like student n- numbers student uh, numbers and student names and things and grades. So let's get this really boring topic on there. By the way, you know that, you know, when you, when we announced that something's boring, it's kind of like when the doctor, did I ever tell you the story, Tony, that I had um, um, in Japanese, it's Ketsumakuen. It's a pink eye. Um, okay. What is that in English? Um, pink um, eye. Conjunctivitis. Conjunctivitis. <laughs> and I had, um, interestingly enough, not interesting enough, painfully enough, uh, viral conjunctivitis and which meant that the medicine for the conjunctivitis was uh, oil based <laughs> hmm. which meant that it didn't dissipate in your eye and so to make sure that the medicine worked in your eye you had to rub your eyes and so when you have conjunctivitis that's basically like rubbing glass <laughs> into your eyeballs and I remember the doctor put the drops was about to put the drops into my eyes and he said to me this will hurt. (laughs) And I thought to myself, oh my God, this is really going to hurt because doctors always say this won't hurt when it does hurt. And what's going to happen when they say it will hurt? So when we say boring, we understand that it's not the most, you know, interesting or exciting topic, but I think it's what you just said, Tony. If you pay attention and listen, it's like a safety belt. Mm. One day it will save you. Yeah, okay, and there's my story. So I think you have a backup story to tell us. Yeah, I got a story from way, way, way back when. Um, this goes How back to back? the mid '80s, and uh, I was at uh, at the university in, in Chicago uh, working, and um, computers were just kind of making it into offices and things for you know ordinary workers' uses, and uh, one landed on my desk. It was a IBM PC AT, uh, just ran DOS, no, no mouse, no graphics, of course. And um, my uh, that was one of those uh, black screens with green type. Yeah, mine was color though. I we had a, the the professor that was um, was the computer professor in that department um, was very happy to like soak the department for the the, the high zoot the, <laughs> the top of the line computer so I, mine was honking for its time and i actually had a color monitor so i had color text and numbers um and uh, my um task 
was uh, self, you know, my own task was to build a database of um, our students, eh, about f- 500 students, perhaps, um, you know, what year they were in, what concentration they were in, uh, mostly graduate students, uh, their advisor, and some other bits of things. So anyway, this huge database. And so, you know, the weeks and months go by and I'm, I'm cranking along and learning, you know, right from the manual, self-taught. You know, I'm an English major. What do I know about computers? And so um, the, the program was DBase 5000. And uh, cranking along and uh, the way that the the machine worked is you, you start up the machine with the OS on a floppy disk, you put the floppy disk in. You turn on the computer. It reads. Well, you, maybe you have to drive. Stop. You have to explain to people what a floppy disk is because you're talking about the true, real floppy. Yeah, floppy disk, this right? is those so, little things that were like thin plastic and like you could use them as like uh, fans to cool you in the no, heat. No, not the little plastic three and a half inch guys. And because you know it, it's an anomaly. Because why? Why would they call this a floppy disk? Because it, it's not floppy at all. It's rigid. <laughs> Oh, so it's it's the second generation floppy disk. Yeah, these are the five and a quarter inch little cartridge um, things. Yeah, they were like encased in paper slash cardboard and a very thin plastic metal coated disk inside, uh, and they were floppy. They were very flexible. Not the most secure place for data, but of course, um, this is nineteen eighty five. I know nothing about computers. And um, again, you put in your operating system disk, uh, system disk, I think it was called. You start with the machine. It reads, loads the system from the floppy disk, and it's then the the system is in memory. You remove the floppy disk. You put in your program, which you're going to use, your application, which in this case was DBase 5000. You run the program. the, The program loads into memory. You take out the disk that disk and then you put in the disk that holds your data and then that application that program can then access and read the data and you can write to the disk etc etc okay so i had to go through all that and And by the way this was a real-time description right (laughs) (laughs) yep that's basically how long the whole process would have taken. It actually took longer than that because you have to wait each time for the machine to you know grab the data and then one day, lo and behold, I uh, put my data disk in there, and it says, well, can't read this file. It's this disk. Huh. So I take it out, look at it, you know, maybe blow on it, <laughs> wave it around a little bit, spin it around, so put it back in. Can't read this disk. Do that maybe a dozen times and uh, talk about the horror, because... Uh, that disc is three or four months of work. <laughs> and of course, why would I have made a copy of it? Because we didn't know. Yeah. So why, why a copy? Well, I mean, you mean it's not going to be there someday? So why would, it, why, would, why would I have made a copy? Ah. So interestingly, and this is, you know, because I had taught myself all this stuff, I was starting to notice things. And, um, I noticed that somewhere on the drive of the computer, there were kind of files with names similar to what I had on my disk. The extensions were different, 
and I looked at their sizes and I looked at their change dates. And I says, you know what? Maybe if I copy that file onto a different floppy disk and change the name and et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. And I managed to get, it wasn't, wasn't right, but I got, um, I would say 70 to 80% of my work back. But that um, initial feeling when you realize that you've lost three months of work and that, that feeling in your stomach, that despair, um, that's what we're trying to pre prevent happening to you. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. my story. <laughs> I was just thinking about it because I remember that in the beginning, everybody used to be really scared about doing something to the computer and harming the computer. Hmm. And that was the wrong approach. What you had to really do is worry about the, the, the floppy disks. Yeah, your own data. Yeah, uh, your data and harming those. Yeah, so you did go from horror to semi bliss. You must have been really happy when you figured. Oh that out. yeah, I celebrated big. <laughs> <laughs> so you lost basically about a month. Yeah. Of work. Yeah. But that's a big that's a big difference between losing a month of work and losing five months of work. Yeah, lost work and at the same time learned a hell of a lot the hard okay. way right <laughs> and ever since and ever since then you've been a diligent this backup. has been my main religion backup has been my religion since then we've often talked about the different ways to back up and we're going to explain that but we can go through with all the different jokes and stories about backing up and i think what's the one of the famous ones is there are two kinds of people in the world those who have lost data and those who will mm-hmm and what else can we come up with, right? That one day you will wish you had backed up. You should back up. You must back up. We strongly suggest that you back up. And it doesn't matter. It's really an important thing to back up. And in the modern era, it's oh, not absolutely. A, yeah, it's, it's it's a breeze. It's easy and it's, it's it's essential because so much more of our life is digital, and so much more of what we use, need, and depend on is somewhere on that computer, it, and it's digital. And someday, yeah. um, wherever it is, whether it's on you know the, the computer's drive itself or a copy or, 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 or it's going to go away. Not, not if, when. It, it's going to go away. Um, and uh, just in general, I talk about, talk about like stories, right? It's like having, having one backup is probably as good as having none. You need you need to have you more. Need, than you need one. you mean you need a safety belt and an airbag. There you go. That's a good way to look at. It. I think that's a really good point. Is that one backup's not enough? Um, I mean, have have you had the situation where you've something went wrong and you said, "Ah, no worries, no problem. I'll go to my backup," and you go to your backup drive and it says this drive is corrupted. <laughs> <laughs> not that, not that the drive was corrupted, or the file, the, or the, or the file, file wasn't there. Yeah, I couldn't. It was not. Or the file has somehow magically <laughs> disappeared. Mm. Okay, so why don't we walk people through this, um, Tony? I think you have some taxonomy for backing up or backup yeah, systems. Yeah, in, in, in two different um, vectors, I guess. So maybe we can we can call it that way. But um, for backups, there's we have two sets of three different kinds. Well, the first is like well. Um, what is often called a clone, cloning your 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 hard drive. 
So I mean the dolly the sheep thing. Dolly the sheep, an exact copy, right? And so everything and um this And when you mean everything, you mean everything. not just fi- I mean everything. All files. Your data, the applications, the preference files, the system files, everything. It's a so the operating cop- system it's itself. A, it's a perfect copy of what we think you'd think of as your computer. Got so it. it's even including the operating system. It includes the operating system. So you can take this drive, which is a mirror image of your drive. You can plug it into your computer, and you can start from it. That's the definition of a clone. Yeah, it's a clone. Is that it's an exact copy, and that you can start your computer from that backup. Yeah, and the, on the Mac, the common uh, tools for that are Carbon Copy Cloner, um, Super Duper, and uh, there's a number of them um, for PCs, and I'll include a link uh, in the in the on the web page because we have to look those up after the show. <laughs> <laughs> I got them right here, <laughs> but there's, there's, thinking- but there's like five of them and I've, I have no way to know which ones to recommend for the PC. Oh. Right. So it, it's like a test of their best. So you can read the article and you can listen to people who know about it. Um, carbon copy cloner, super duper. They're both great for the Mac. I can recommend. Yeah, we, I, yeah. I use carbon cloner and super duper. And yeah. they basically both do the same thing, just yeah. slightly differently. Yeah. And then you've got um, a different kind of tool which does back up your data mostly, and and I think applications as well. And for for the Mac, it's it's uh, called Time Machine, and what's its advantage is that it's really really simple to use. It just runs by itself in the background; you don't have to do anything, and it does timed backups pretty much continuously in the background. And I think you can control how frequently it will check and back up what you're doing. So if you are working on a on a project at noon, uh, then you go out to lunch and you come back and uh, it's you know your hard drive is toast, <clears throat> you can go to the time machine disk and, and then reconstruct what you've done automatically. It already have been backed up for you. Uh, it's not a clone. It doesn't have everything, and it doesn't always do what it's supposed to do. But it's but it's easy and it's free. Uh, that's the second type, and I think there are other proprietary formats, tools that'll do the same kind of thing. Watch what you're doing and back up bit by bit. So basically, it's taking a snapshot of your system, right? And you've got you can go back in time incrementally, you know, back to this morning, back to yesterday, back to last week, and see what happened. So, really useful for um, uh, that type of work, incremental backups. And then there's um, uh, another kind of backup where it's just a a subset of your files, and so it doesn't doesn't necessarily copy everything. It doesn't copy the, the, the operating system. It doesn't copy the applications, but kind of maybe your your data, right? Your your file, your your files that you've created, your documents, um, photos, um, music library, perhaps. Um, those kinds of things. You decide what it's gonna what part of your system is going to be backed up. And um, this would include things like Dropbox, uh, Google Drive, uh, Microsoft OneDrive, um, Apple's iCloud and each of these, each of those services does more of some things and some things do this and not. So Dropbox, for example, also has, keeps incremental backups. You can go back in time bit by bit. 
Um, iCloud for the Mac does all kinds of potentially can do all kinds of other um, sharing, like for example, of settings or um, or or or. Um, so those are the the three kinds: uh, cloning, um, carbon copy, stupid, and the other others, uh, time machine, and uh, this subset of files. Um, for myself, I always have a daily clone like every night my computer clones itself i have a a similar clone uh that i update every week or two and then i've got a third as a part of another larger hard drive that i'll maybe update every two or three months <clears throat> i did try um uh, and I, we'll get to this other one, a cloud service, um, but that didn't really work for me. I also use Dropbox for most of the things that I work on all the time. So, for example, all my school work, all my writing, um, this podcast, uh, my web pages um, are all on Dropbox. And so I have a copy on my computer, I have a copy on these other clones, and I have a copy in the cloud uh, on Dropbox. So yeah, you want to talk about um, seatbelts and airbags and maybe a garden angel on my shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to go back a little bit. Yep. Do you mind, Tony? No, go, no, absolutely. You said that um, you're set to back up every day. Mm-hmm. Can you do, like, is that easy to do? Is it, I mean, which, what are you using? So you're using. Like you, I use Carbon Copy Cloner. So you're using Carbon Copy Cloner, which costs something like, what, 30 bucks? Well, I think it's free. Uh, for a the, while. Carbon for, Copy. If you don't use the scheduling. So if you do it manually. It's free. I think it's free. But to and schedule, it, what I just, what I, every night. Right. Um, you, you need to buy it. And it, yeah, it's like $30. And okay. so, no, you go to the, you open up the application and you, you create, this is, okay, I want, you know, you plug in your outside hard drive. Um, you say, okay, I want uh, this drive to be cloned onto this drive every every night at 11 p.m. Or it could be or 1 a.m. Or 2 a.m. Yeah, anytime at all. And then you hit schedule and boom, it's done. As long as that uh, drive is plugged in and it doesn't have to be mounted, um, just plugged in, uh, Carbon Copy Cloner will find it, it will mount it, it'll copy whatever's changed in the last 24 hours onto it, make sure that it's perfect, 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 and then it'll unmount the disk and shut itself off and you'll be all set in the morning. And all for basically the cost of seven large coffees at Starbucks. Yeah. If you paid for it. Oh, for the app for the for the application, then but that you, autumn, you, that you have you to buy the disc the too, right? You have to buy a, uh, an external oh, hard drive. Okay, so <clears throat> right, so there's the additional cost of the external hard drive, and those have gotten so cheap that it's really we're looking at like what I think about. Let me see, one one TB a tetrabyte is a uh, it's under Ichiman yeah, it's yeah. under ten thousand yen, under a hundred dollars, right? Okay. So what you just do is you set it up, and once you learn how to set it up, how long did it take you to learn how to set this up? Oh, it's 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 very very simple. It did, there's no there's no time. There's no learning curve. It's fifteen minutes max. 
Okay, so let's make sure, because I want to try to quantify this for people, because there are people who feel that the time and the money is not really worth it. So for 15 minutes of your time, let's triple it just to be safe to 45 minutes. 45 minutes of your time, $100 or less for the hard drive, and then $30 if you really want to go the convenient route for Carbon Cloner. So for $130 and 45 minutes, and because the shopping time doesn't count because you're doing this through uh, all online, right, and you're getting your hard drive delivered to your house, you have peace of mind. Hmm. Okay. And it feels, that feels, when you do it the first time, it feels good. <laughs> it feels like, okay, I'm but, safe now. But it doesn't feel as good as the <laughs> first time you invoke it, uh. right? That is, you know, you're using it, right? I, I think we've both used these systems for years and years. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And then there's the one time, that one time, right, that it saves you. Yeah, I will, uh, I'll interject something here. It's, it's not really a story, but it is an experience. And it's like, okay, I just said, yes, I back up every night. And it's like, people say, oh, really? Really? Yeah, really? Because phase two is like, okay, backup. I understand backup's important. I used to do it once a week. Until, and this was about 10 years ago. <laughs> on, on, and this is, not, this is not an exaggeration. I'm not making this up. On Friday... After the first week of classes, <laughs> my drive died. No. Yeah, yeah. So I lost the whole first week, So which, of course, you know, we've talked about spreadsheets. So all week, I've been just jamming the data in there. I'm making class lists. I'm doing class planning. All this stuff is all this going in there. And yeah, yeah. All I could get to was like last, last Sunday. So <laughs> we changed the schedule. <laughs> it gets backed up every night. <laughs> And so you went from backing up once a week because that meant that you lost six days. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So... And there was no Dropbox. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, 10 years ago. Oh, you're, yeah, right. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> when, did, when did... You mean your Dropbox also disappeared? No. So... You had that happen, and now it's automatic, it's brainless, it just doesn't require any thinking of on your part. And what if the computer's asleep at night? It still works, Oh, right? it wakes up. It wakes it up and puts it back to, back to sleep afterwards. Yeah. So there's absolutely nothing you can do, and you wake up, and you, don't, you can't even tell it's been done, right? Correct. So this is really a very convenient, easy system. And you can you can actually ask the application to email you each time it does it, so you get a confirmation that's been done. So you wake up in the morning, you check your email, and it says, "Yeah, okay, we we ran this, we ran the clone, uh, the cloning process. That you know, it took forty five minutes. It transferred this many gigabytes of data, etc., etc., etc." Like, okay, good, I'm good, I'm done. No email. It's like, uh oh, something happened. I I didn't. <laughs> it didn't back up last night. Where's my stuff? Oh my god! <laughs> so you got to go fix it. Okay. It doesn't happen that often, but it might. But that extra little email, the confirmation is nice. Yeah, I think that it's the systems have gotten so good that they only inform you. You only need to know if something's gone wrong. Yeah, but that's and like that, a false name. It's like, you know, okay, well, what if it doesn't? <laughs> I, I want the confirmation that it did it. Because like, if it fails, then it just looks like everything is okay. <laughs> if the notification fails, right? 
But again, very, okay. very customizable. Yes, you can set yes, these yes. up to do things. Email notification, not, you can do it any way you want. And it's not difficult at all. Easy, easy. And once it's set up, you just leave it alone, right? Yeah. Okay. So, so move on. I So that's, what are we calling that? We're calling that complete, total, backup, local. Yeah. Okay. So please go ahead. Yeah, we got like another another different three types sliced a different way. So uh, one local um, way of doing this is the the the, the, the simplest way and the way the way that most people will do this is it's like a, a direct connection. You get a external hard drive, the right cable. You plug it into your computer. Boom! That's it. Okay. There's also um, something called a NAS, a network attached storage, which is a kind of a kind of a big step up on the on on the geek ladder. But uh, this would be, for example, a probably a huge hard drive uh, that is not connected directly to your computer, but it's connected to your uh, home Wi-Fi network. So it's connected to your Wi-Fi router, assuming that it can, um, you know, do this. Some of them can, some of them can't. Um, <clears throat> and so you don't need to plug it into your computer at all. It's, it's, it's somewhere else in a closet. And um, these tools, whichever tool you're using, is copying to that drive or a partition on that drive. Um, the... Advantage of that is okay. You don't have to plug it in, uh, unplug it each day. Um, you don't have to see it. It just happens over there somewhere. And um, usually, though, that kind of a drive is also being used for um, maybe a media sharing. So you might use that to store all your movies and TV shows and whatever you have, and often maybe share it with other users in the house. So, for example. On that drive might be a backup of your machine, a backup of your partner's machine, maybe backup of your kid's machine, um, uh, one partition full of all the movies that all of you share together so all of you can access it or shoot it to your TV, etc., etc. So that's and that takes a significant setup, <laughs> and um, it's a lot of work. And I think maybe the most most popular one is a Synology. Maybe okay. that's what wire cutter says. Anyway, do you do you have an ass? <laughs> no, do you? Neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> I've kind of looked at them and kind of go, nah, maybe a little bit too more, much more effort than I need. But exactly, it's actually, exactly. I don't really need it because um, of the of services. You know, the only thing I would really need it for would have been music, mm -hmm. but with cloud-based music with streaming services there's no need for it anymore right 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 wouldn't you say I, I used to think that i was thinking about it but there again there is the important thing here for us to mention is that if you decide to go down any of these paths like for example even a nas it's not so difficult as it once was it's not as difficult as it once was. And it has been with, getting easier. It's, it's good. Yeah. It it's getting get reasonably easier. easier. And I'd say that somebody with limited technology, and that means the ability to follow directions and plug cables in, mm -hmm. should pretty much be able to do that. Uh, even a NAS at this point. Yeah. 
Yeah. Whereas I think three, four years ago, it was just a lot of work. Yeah, and and the, the information is you know all on the web, right? Whatever you want to learn, whatever you want to do, you can just just go to YouTube and say you know this, and it's there. You can watch it step by step. It's all done for you. So, yeah, certainly very doable. But yeah, I don't have I don't have time to watch movies. Um, I don't have a big media library. I make out tons and tons of music, but um, I try to carry that around with me all the time because. Despite you know, as as we those of us in Japan know, um, despite the image of the country, there's you we don't have ubiquitous Wi-Fi the way one might assume, like or maybe they have in Palo Alto. And also, there are limits on uh, yeah bandwidth, data, sure. bandwidth and your data files. Yeah. So, but you know, maybe that's something we should do. We should actually do an episode on streaming music services mm. because I use a different one from what you use. You mm. use Apple Music, and mm. I use Tidal. And anyway. That's much more interesting of a topic. Should we just change topics midstream? Let's no. not. <laughs> let's not. Let's not. Yes, I, I, let's go. Okay, so you can do the NAS, but most people won't do the NAS. Right. Do a NAS, right? The so, other one, yeah. The other, there's one more, um, and this is um, we talked about like Dropbox, Google Drive, Microsoft OneDrive, all all that stuff, like stuff in the cloud. Um, there are other dedicated backup services for cloud storage. So um, I think the two most popular are Backblaze and iDrive. And they're kind of a subscription model. Um, you, know, you pay them a certain amount and uh, you know, they're, they're different. One, you can have multiple computers and multiple drives all backed up. Others, um, you pay per computer, whatever it is. But you basically you're renting storage on a server somewhere, on somebody else's computer, somebody's their hard drive somewhere else. And it, like Dropbox, just kind of does a continual backup of your system whenever you're connected to Wi-Fi. You can set it to like you know different times, uh, how often you want it to check and so forth and so on. Again, you have to be careful you're, um, about your, you know, if you're, use, if you're using, um, you know, a hotspot through your phone and things uh, to... Turn that off for that because you can, you know, obviously if it's backing up all your debt and you're working on something, uh, that's going to be a lot of bits. Um, but um, the big advantage of that of one of these services is that your data is not at home. So when your home goes away, um, a fire, an earthquake, theft. Uh, and your computer and your hard drive and your NAS are all gone and all your other backup hard drives here are gone, um, your files are still safe somewhere else um, to be downloaded whenever you, you know, replace your computer. Do you use any of, any of those, Charles? What do I use? I use iCloud, right? You're talking about iCloud, Oh, well, I'm talking about like, the, no, the, uh, the, the specific backup services like uh, Backblaze. Okay, uh, I just wanted I to drive. be. I just wanted to be clear on that one, yeah. right? So I don't use Backblaze, but I've been really thinking about it. Yeah, I, I tried. It's, I didn't buy it. I tried it once, and you didn't go with it. I didn't go with it for the reason I just because I I run into real problems with uh, my cellular usage, right? And you know, if I could hook up the hotspot and 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 it's like, well, and I came to the conclusion, you know, I really don't need it. 
my my other files are all on Dropbox. The ones and the others, then yeah, I just decided I didn't need it. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure I was getting a little bit confused there. But yeah, you're talking about those like so that they actually have a computer somewhere that what's different that's different from the complete backup system i'm thinking of where they had these like mac mini racks but backblaze is that i've heard good things about it it's it's it's, it's it was it's good. highly rated and it's good but but it doesn't back up the other reason that I, that I didn't go with it is that it didn't back would not back up certain files so for example it will not back up the os and I'm not sure, but maybe it didn't back up the applications. So it didn't then, do the applications folder, so it was just it was just kind of like Dropbox. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. So, what's the advantage of it over? Something yeah, like Dropbox? I, I, whatever it was, I I didn't go with it. But some some a lot of people swear by it. So, okay, throwing it out there. <clears throat> yeah, the data thing sometimes can be a pain. <clears throat> I know that. Sometimes my, my phone or I'll put something onto, uh, I have a, a, a mobile router and it has one of these three gigabyte limits every three days. Mm. But I also know that there's no way I'm using three gigabytes of data because mm. I have my phone is on a three gigabyte a month plan mm-hmm. and I almost mm-hmm. you know go through just that. But I've noticed sometimes that I'll turn the router on and then suddenly it's gone through a gigabyte. Yeah. And and I realized that what's happening is that's because the, my cloud services are sinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you have to just be a little bit careful about that. But we'll move into the, the Dropbox thing in just a second, I think, right? Yeah. So we'll move on to... Maybe it's a good segue at this yeah, point. Yeah, security right? and privacy. Well, what are the different cloud services, right? Let's just kind of enumerate them. For Apple, there's iCloud. Okay. Microsoft is OneDrive. OneDrive. Then there's Dropbox is the biggie. Uh-huh. Then there's Box, which Go- is sim- Google Drive. Google Drive, and then Box. Box, I forgot about Box. Which is simpler right? to Dropbox. Mm. Okay. And then I guess in the privacy thing, we'll talk about the encrypted cloud services. So should we go into privacy then? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this I think I'm a little bit stricter about or more uptight about than you are, I so believe. You're very much more conscious of it than I am. Yeah. Well, I, thank you, Tony. That was a very polite for you <laughs> say, you know, apologizing or making my neurotic behavior look better. But um, when we talk about privacy, I think that there's been a real shift in our understanding of privacy. And when I talk about privacy, I'm basically interested not in having my data, and that, I'm not talking about banking data or anything else along those lines, personal private data being kept private or being um, secure. But I'm really talking about student data. And when I talk about student data, I primarily mean student numbers, their student ID number and their names. Although I still don't understand what somebody could do with the student ID number. Do you? Um, No. I wish somebody would really explain that. You know, maybe you could get in and you could affect, you could find out what classes somebody was taking. It's not like a credit card number where you can charge things. But I do know that there are some schools in the my, the school where I work that they're, for example, it, they don't want us to do grading off campus. And if you want to grade off campus and submit your grades from off campus, you actually have to ask for permission. 
and they will look into how you're doing things. Now, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But what we're really talking about here, or I'm talking about primarily, is how do you secure your student's ID number and names if that's how the school um, wants you to act? And a big key on the privacy, even before we go into storage and everything, is people have to understand that an email is just like a postcard. It can be read by anybody if it is intercepted. So even if um, you're using, let's say, a school's email server to email to a student in the school, you're, it's not a secure email. It's not private. And one has to be aware of that. The big thing I'm hearing from people recently in terms of just privacy and protecting themselves and what I'm going to be talking about is really how do you as a teacher really protect yourself from any kind of arbitrary decision that schools might make, although I don't know anyone who's ever experienced anything like that, um, is if your school does offer an email account, if you're part-time or full-time, you might want to use that when you're communicating with the students, because that ensures a certain degree, not just of privacy, but also safety. Do you have any schools like that, Tony, where they say that we want you to communicate to students through the school email system? Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, I think, I think one of them, um, um, wants us to do that or maybe requires us to do that, but I don't know. The reason I would suggest this is that it's a real good thing for safety, for the teacher. Uh, if everything is going through a school's email server, then there's always a permanent record, even I think of deleted mails probably because there's a record and you can always have those records found and they can be looked at. You just never want to get into a situation where you're emailing, I think, directly to a student's private account. Some schools are really strict about that. In fact, you've sent me a couple of emails, Tony, where you said that school districts, for example, in the United States and also in Japan for high school teachers, they can't communicate directly with students? Yes, I, yeah, I mean, there's a Through email of and different right. restrictions that were you know, kind of kind of wackadoodle. Okay. So one thing in terms of just protecting yourself is to use the school system, but that's problematic in the sense that suddenly now you've got three or four accounts to check. But I think most people have multiple email accounts at this point. So, and that can all be run through one application. But the other thing becomes, how do you prevent your students' ID numbers and names from getting out into the wild? And I, I have a simple system that's going to solve almost, I think, what, 98% of people's problems. And the system is good enough that when I have gone to the person at my university who's responsible for signing off on whether or not we're allowed to go off campus with student data, and I've explained the system, they went, okay, that's great. Go ahead, please, no problem. And so I think I may have talked about this before on the podcast, Tony. Do you recall? I think you did. You mentioned it. But yeah. I'm going to go through it again, sure. so bear with me. Basically what happens is when I communicate with students, they never use their student numbers at all. The assigned student number from the university because I will give them a basically a class student number. And it works simply that the first class of my week is A, the second class is B, the third class is C, and I just go down the week. And that's how I know what class I have. So I always know that, for example, E class is my fifth class of the week. 
Now, I could name it like M1 for Monday 1, T3 for Tuesday 3, whatever system you want. But what you do is you designate the class, and then you just have to go through the roll sheet. And the first student at the top of the roll sheet is number one, and the second student is number two. So if it's Monday, my first class, I have student A17, and I know that that is a 17th student on the roll sheet. And the roll sheets are basically secure. You can't really get into them. And then for my concern is that the roll sheets that are online, that's the school's responsibility for security, not mine. And I'm really concerned just of making sure that I'm covering my ba you know, bases and doing the right thing. You could scramble it if you want, invert it, change the name, you know, do it in alphabetical list. But what you do is then you'll have like A1 through A30. I'll have C1 through C30. And whenever I have spreadsheets or whenever I communicate with students, they use that assigned number I've given them. So they'll say, you know, dear Mr. Wiz, my name is, and I tell them only to use their first name. So they'll say, my name is Hirohito, or, you know, my name is... Uh, you know, Tato and my assigned student number is A12 or E14. And now I know who they are. And the nice thing is, is they don't have to necessarily identify the class because it's identified. All my spreadsheets look like that. They're by classes. And then they just have the A number, the B number, the C number, the D number. When students hand in papers or when they submit things online, for example, if your student's using Google Forms, then you definitely want to do this because you're posting, you're having students post their student numbers into Google and then their names. And so you could see how the school could be a little concerned about that. Now, if you do this, you've solved all your problems. And here's the nice thing about it is that when I collect papers from students, it's really easy to sort through my papers because I just have to do one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And you don't have to go through, you know, 115-20874, which makes sorting the papers more difficult. The other thing, an advantage, and it's very helpful if you're going on a paper-based system, if you, for example, find some random paper on your desk and it's, you know, student number 11752820, how do you find that out if the student has written the class number on it? But with my system... It doesn't matter because the student has an E number there. I can find, oh, that's my fifth class of the week. So that's the easy, simple solution. And it, it's actually, I think, the easiest solution of all. And it's almost no work. So any questions on that before I jump to the next thing? No, no, pretty clear. Oh, are you already falling asleep here? I'm wide awake. I'm wide awake. Okay. So that's a good system, I think. It works and it's hard to crack saves you time. It's easy to sort through things. The only problem becomes when students forget their number. I was just, <laughs> so, I was just going to say that the big, the big catch in all that is um, training the kids to do that and then having them remember to do that. So that, and it that's a biggie. It takes one week. And what you do is you assign them their number, then you ask them, tell me your number because students can't remember each other's numbers. You say, okay, you're sure, fine. Then at the end of the class, you have them write their, you know, assigned number and then kind of like an exit question. And then as soon as you do the next class, you do a quick quiz and you tell them to use their number and 
know, there'll be out of 30 students, three or four, who'll say, I'm sorry, I forgot my number. You say, I told you to write it down. I told you to write it down. Okay, if you forget your number again, it's a 15% penalty on your final grade. <laughs> but you know, you're not going to do that, but you're just really trying to imbue upon them the importance of remembering the number and overall it works. And I've almost never had an error in the student number, but that's why you have to ask for either first name or last name, just in case. Because if you get two G18s, right. you know, you, ha- you could at least figure out which is the right person because the first name will match. So that's why I always ask for the first name as well as the class number, the G18 or something. Okay. okay. So that's that. The next thing is if you don't want to do the system, and trust me when I say that this I think is the easiest solution. I mean, it really, really is. Everything else now gets a little bit or a lot more complicated. The next thing to do is that you can use a cloud system like Dropbox or Box or... Google Drive, and then to ensure, because these are unencrypted actually. And when we mean unencrypted is that they get, when they're in transit, when it's going from your computer and being uploaded into Google's Drive or OneDrive, it's not encrypted. And somebody, it's possible that somebody could get into your account, and I'm not sure. You use a app that will encrypt the file on your computer and then it gets uploaded. And these are things like um, the one I use for, it's not the easiest one, but it's not bad. And it's was $5. It's something called Cryptomator. I think that there's um, another one called Box Cryptor, and that there's a free version and a paid version. And um, Box Cryptor and I think Cryptomator work with almost everything. Um, so you can go that way. And I think Boxcryptor also works on Windows machines as well. So I think it's uh, operating system agnostic. But the other advantage of these things is that they actually encrypt the file on your computer because here's a real problem. What happens if you lose your computer or your computer gets stolen and you haven't used a strong password and you haven't encrypted the files on your computer? I think that at my school, they, if you lost your computer and somebody had access to your files, you'd be in big trouble. So the advantage here is that by using one of these apps, you can encrypt your files locally on your local machine. Nobody could get into it, even if they had access to your machine, because they'd have to have access to an additional password. And then you get to upload an encrypted file which means that once the file goes into Dropbox or it goes into OneCloud or it goes into Google Drive, it's a totally unreadable file. Again, you've ensured your students' privacy, you've ensured your data privacy, and it's a useful way to go. The third thing you can do is you can use an encrypted service, which kind of does the whole thing for you. And that puts the local drive just like Dropbox on your computer, but that gets encrypted in transit and on your machine and it's encrypted in the cloud. And these are often what are known to be uh, zero knowledge backups or encryption, which means that, and this is an important thing to remember, the service can't get into your files because they don't have the passwords. They don't have access to the encryption, which means if you ever lose your password on using one of these zero knowledge systems or services, 
that you will not be able to get into the files. So people are saying, oh, no, this is just too difficult. It's too problematic. It's just too inconvenient. I got to remember passwords. What if I forget my password? Then we get into why you would want to have a... <laughs> we have to talk. Have we talked about 1Password and uh, other password apps? No. Yeah. Just a real quick aside. There's things that are password managers. Uh, you and I both use 1Password, Correct. I believe. Correct. And then... Apple has its iCloud keychain. And then there's another big password app. Do you remember the name? Uh, I think it's with a B, but I don't remember. Right. And a password manager will completely keep all your passwords, and it's kept safe by a master password. And there's all sorts of encryption and a lot of extra services because you can have private notes and you can put your credit cards in and everything is really seriously encrypted. And, Tony, would you agree with the statement that before you get a password manager, you think, why would I want to pay money for that? And then after every year when you pay for it, you say that's money well spent? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, um, of, of these things, specifically 1Password. I, I haven't really tried anything else, but it works so well, and it's so dependable and, and, and powerful, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So... Right. Yes. Um, and, and use and on one. The, use one. Yeah. And on the iOS, it's great because it's just a thumbprint. And with the new app, you know, phones, you're looking at Face ID. Um, and it's just so convenient. And you have never have to worry about your passwords. And you print out your special password and you hide it somewhere and you're fine and set. So, yeah. I think the other, uh, some of the others are LastPass. That's it. LastPass. Okay. Um, there's one called uh, Dashlane. Yeah. That one I don't know. Mm. There's also one made by uh, Intel, but the easiest one, and I think for everyone, I think one password's also Windows now. I believe so. And I think also for Linux. So good thing. Um, so basically, a real quick aside here is that there's, I would say between, oops, sorry about hitting my microphone there, one password and something like a backup system like Carbon Cloner that you're looking at $100 a year, and that's $100 for peace of mind. It's a really good deal, I think. Uh, and even less, I think there are free versions of things. So going back, there's three ways then you can back up. You can go use an encrypted service. And the encrypted services um, are like Sync.com or Spider Oak, for example. They're about $60 a year, $5 a month or something. You can go with something like Cryptomator or um, you know, the Box Cryptor, which is the app that allows you to use a cloud system and encrypt. And if you want, you can even roll your own, which I think is called OwnCloud. And you get like a virtual private server and set it up. But I think most people wouldn't go down that route. You, that's going pretty high up the nerd ladder. But if you think about all the ways I've described things, I think the system that I use is the easiest and simplest solution to make sure you have privacy for your students' data. Your own personal data and private data, you do have to go and use either an app that encrypts your data or a service that encrypts your data. With a Mac, I know that you can encrypt the hard drive. Right, I was completely. just going to ask if you used File... It's called File Vault. File Vault, yeah. Do and you I use that? No, I don't use it because... 
the files that I need to keep private are always in an encrypted service and encrypted files. And I, um, I think it's been around long enough now that it's reasonably secure. And I'm actually thinking about doing that or at least designating my documents file as using file vault and I'm sure windows also has encryption. And I know that with Linux, that when you set up a Linux computer, it asks, asks you whether or not you want to encrypt your files your hard drive immediately. So if you're really concerned about privacy, and again, I'm not coming from the uh, um, viewpoint or the position that this is to ensure privacy from government snooping or anything. I'm coming just from, as a teacher, making sure that I've got all my bases covered, all the check boxes are checked, that I'm making sure that I'm following the school rules and that the school no, um, cannot come to me and say, I have broken their privacy rules or I have done something wrong. And I can't strongly suggest enough how the first system, just designate your classes or give them different letters and change the order if you really want to be safe, assign the students a number, and the benefits are myriad. It's just a good way to go. And so that's pretty much, Tony, I think, in a nutshell, covering everything really quickly. Hmm. And this is such a boring topic that you haven't said very much. <laughs> well, you're the expert. No, I don't know if I'm an expert, but <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm one of those people who always, you know, is looking for the easiest solution to a problem. Mm -hmm. And after all this time, I really do think that it's just an elegant solution by renaming your classes and assigning the student number. And the benefits, again, are so good in terms of... You know, it's also, by the way, it's really easy to see where there's a gap. Because if, you know, you go from student number 36 to 38, you know that, ah, uh, that student didn't give me their paper. But if I go from a student number 116728 to 116740, I don't know if there's any missing students. In other words, I can't see a downside to it. And compared to the other systems, I think it's the best way to go. Anyway, I think that's pretty much about privacy. Hmm. Can, um, did I miss anything? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, but just to come at it from exactly you know, 180 degrees, the other extreme. Um, again, you started off as like with the student, student what can numbers. What you do with the student what can number? You do with student number, <clears throat> and you're going, you know, the way you described it, going, you know, to you know, great great lengths, maybe not great lengths, but some lengths to <clears throat> ensure that privacy. Um, you know, I've got schools that give us the student, the class lists on paper, um, throw it in our mailbox. Um, doesn't Anybody can walk in there, stick their hand in there, yank it out. Um, I have one school where it's not even in our mailbox. It's a special um, rack of slots, mail slots, where they give us a student list. And we're supposed to keep them there. Put them there at the you know pick them up at the beginning of the day and leave them there at the end and I do, which I do not do because I don't think that's not <laughs> that violates even my <laughs> security concerns so mine go with me um, been there for fifteen years I've never had an issue um, that my paper isn't in that slot and there's a lot of other people's whose paper you know whose class lists are not kept in those slots um, yeah I don't. And so, you know, your, your, your points are well taken, but yeah, I do none of that. Uh, and the, 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 down, the only, the, the, for me personally, the only downside 
to what you described is like, is just kind of if you got a class with 120 students, yeah, I get it. Um, my largest classes are about 43, 45. Um, that for me would just maybe depersonalize things a little bit too much. Um, for example, like my my spreadsheets, right? They have the student names, they have their student number, and they've got um, their uh, photos. And uh, in many cases, it, their university email address. Oh, so you do have serious privacy issues with your spreadsheets then? Um, I would, I suppose, but... What what are you going to do with that? Oh, then that's what you just do is you would you. No, I mean, if somebody you, gets that information. What are, what can they do with it? I understand that. Yeah, but right. <clears throat> so I, I yeah, I'm wide open. I'm wide that. open. Yeah, right. Uh, and my argument, I think, on this one, Tony, is we all know what happens when somebody at a university makes a mistake. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, everybody gets into trouble. I've seen that a number of times and they'll start checking. And I really uh, would just say you never, you just want to ensure that the school you're, you're in line and actually you're exceeding the school's requirements. Cause again, I do understand completely what you say that, you know, student lists are put into envelopes or at least at my university, they put it into a taped sealed envelope. Yeah, no, no, just, just, just right. Right. I've seen that before. And I would rather, I guess, be able to say, you know, I'm careful because I also do uh, have spreadsheets. Well, that's smart. I, I mean, that's, right. that's how you should approach it. Right. Because I do. Um, I don't know. We've talked about this before. I think Excel, you can now put pictures in, but one of the advantages of numbers from Apple was that you could put the picture of a student. And my school actually has the photos of the students online in the in the roll sheet, and you can actually downlist a PDF with the picture there. Uh-huh. So I don't have to worry about you know asking students permission to take pictures of them, et cetera. Some of the schools don't have that, but I will put that into a spreadsheet, a, a numbers spreadsheet, and that definitely gets encrypted locally on my machine as well as when it gets uploaded. So it's uploaded and kept in the cloud and it's encrypted also. And so, you know, things are reasonably safe, but I can, yeah, I would just ask, well, what can somebody do with this information? Right. It's um, the student number isn't like the social security number in the United States where Correct. actually you could really get a lot of information. Once you know somebody's date of birth and their social security number, you can put that together. But um. Just thinking to myself, you know, I don't want to get into trouble. And also the schools, my school does say, we do not want you. They actually have said, we do not want you to take like grading off campus. Because what happened, I think, is some professor forgot their student papers on a train once or something. And that's what I mean, that they will, you know, there will be school-wide kind of restrictions. And this way I don't have to make any adjustments and everything's fine. But, you know, what can I say? I'm just trying to be careful. Well, it's good. I think it's good advice and good tips. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, it'd be interesting to find out from our listeners, how many of them actually use the picture thing in uh, a spreadsheet, for example, or to identify their students. I you think but probably most people don't go through that much trouble. But what I have seen is 
teachers, again, people who are not using spreadsheets, they have often um, paper, on paper, they will have a, a, a sheet for each student, and each, student, and each uh, uh, sheet will have the student's photo on there. I think they ask the students to bring their own, you know, pretty okay. or whatever, and uh, they use those photos. And maybe this is my paranoia, but if I were the, um, a teacher and I was taking photos of the students, I would actually have a form that says, you a know, from the student. A release says it's, you know, the student says, I understand that my instructor is using this picture just to identify me, and I understand that the respect the instructor will respect my privacy. I'm sure someone somewhere is breaking some school rule there. So I would try to be careful about that. I like it at, at my school because, again, I can just cut and copy and paste the student pictures into the spreadsheet. Yeah, well, that's, that's very convenient. It's a really, really nice thing. But as, again, as I told, I was explaining to my students once, I said, you know, if you, like, forget your homework, you know, two times or something, you know, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to look and find your picture. <laughs> and I'm going to say, ah, this is you. You know the old story about if a teacher knows your name? We've mentioned this a number of times, right? Mm-hmm. Where you say to the student, you know, if a teacher knows your name, it can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. So The only, yeah. the only problem with that is that the, 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 that that university photo that they've taken probably looks nothing like the, <laughs> the kid that's sitting in your class. Oh, you know, sometimes it does. But, <laughs> yeah, by the fourth does, year. Yeah. But, yeah, but if you're only teaching first-year classes, you're okay. <laughs> but by the fourth year, it's like, you know, when you have a fourth-year student, it's <clears> – <throat> Like, there's no, I think, I don't know. I wonder if my university, yeah, they only take a picture once in four years. So you're right. I never thought about that. Because in my fo- my upper division classes, they're very small. Yeah, so you I don't need need photos, You don't need yeah. photos because, you know, they're like 10 students in a class or something. Mm. They're not 35, 40 or so. Okay, Tony, I think we've gone long enough on a yeah, pretty boring a topic. Well, but we cut a lot of stuff, so. But it's important. Mm. It's like getting, it's like flossing. Yeah. Going to the dentist, it's physical mainten- exam. Yeah, main- maintaining your car. Nothing exciting about it, but the the cost another, performance is really incredible. Another boring FD le- lecture. Yeah. yeah. Well, so <laughs> sorry, we will. Guys, sorry, guys. T- t- Tony and I promise that we will try to come up with an interesting topic or a more interesting topic for the next subject. Mm. We have some ideas about some things that might be interesting given where things are going in education. But until then, Hmm. you'll have to live with this boring episode from me. I'm Charles Wiz. Tony Silva. Two teachers teachers talking about boring subjects today. But please um, do back up. Minimally back up and minimally come up with some system that just protects you from a school's policies. And so that you're safe and sound. And your students are safe and sound. Okay, Tony. Okay. You be well. See you. Bye. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs>